Welcome to Films and Feelings, a podcast with armchair analysts to ruin your favorite shows by psychoanalyzing the characters, concepts, and everything in between. I am your host, Alexa Bailey, licensed therapist and pop culture enthusiast. And I'm your co-host, Bailey Elliott, layperson extraordinaire and comic relief. As always, we are not movie critics. We are not here to rate the cinematography, actors, or plot. We are here to take our analysis and apply it to real life to be better people. Welcome back to another episode of Films and Feelings. Bailey, how are you doing today? fantastic super excited to record it's been a minute it's been a hot minute and this is a great one to come back to because solid solid movie absolutely i mean a classic undisputed classic oh it is a classic and so just for our um for the nerds out there who have read the book this is only looking at the movie because if we got into like the fellow nerds that have read it, I, I read this a couple years ago with my book club. Shows how cool I am. And it's like a, a thousand plus pages. And this movie is loosely based <laughs> on that narrative. Loosely. Yes. Loosely. And so they're very different from each other. So because of that, we are only focusing on the movie version. Um, and so as we look at this, there certainly are some... Uh, the movie attempts to underscore some themes about justice, vengeance. Um, but as we look at it through the mental health lens, what we see come up is just the impact that systems have in our lives and specifically looking at spirituality and uh, stages of faith. We're also looking at the healthy versus unhealthy expressions of anger and injustice. And of course, I mean, we kind of hinted at this last week, um, so we get to dive, dive deeper into it, is moral relativism, which is a huge thing that we see throughout this. And so Bailey, give us a little overview of what we missed if we didn't watch the movie. Yeah. So I don't know if this is anyone else's top five movies, but it is for me, at least growing up, I would always just, this is my answer when someone said, what's your favorite movie? I would always say, Cat of Monte Cristo. Oh, I didn't know that. It's great. Um, So this was a favorite of yours. Did we ruin it? No, we did not ruin it. Okay, good. Although I think just growing up sort of, Took the sparkle out of it a little bit. It yeah. is. I mean, this movie came out in 2002. Yeah. So it's right in the era of like that cheesiness of like giving you everything you want. Yes. You know, like, I don't know, all these one liners. Like, I'm watching it thinking, man, this is actually almost comical sometimes right. in some of it. But, <laughs> um, but a love of mine for sure. Yeah. So, as Lexi was saying, it's based off of the novel, if you can call it a novel. Right. The, what do you got? The epic, the gigantic <laughs> work. Yes. That is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. So to give a overview of this, the story, um, for those of you who maybe saw a long time ago, need a refresher. So this movie, we start off at sea in this movie with Edmond, Edmund. Edmund is the American <laughs> way of saying it, but like the movie Edmond. I just watched, it's like all French. <laughs> so I don't really know how. You know, go I think for I it. might you go back commit, and forth. Commit. Edmond. <laughs> I might French it up. Yeah. <laughs> so we have Edmond, <laughs> our main character, um, and his bestie, Fernand, um, out at sea. They are taking their sick captain ashore to the island of Elba for medical attention. And now, of course, the island of Elba at this time is where Napoleon is. Mm-hmm. Now we meet Emperor Napoleon himself. And Edmund, his um, 
The illiterate sweetheart that he is agrees to take a letter back to France mm-hmm. from Napoleon, um, who tells him, you know, this is a chill letter. Like, it's good. It's just for, for friends. It's no, yeah. And Emma's like, okay. Yeah. This is just, it's chill. And he said, okay. Well, who sees this out of the corner of his eye? He sees this all go down as Fernand, like a Fernand, which um, uh, they're friends. But we find out pretty quickly that Fernand is pretty much the worst. Yeah. <laughs> he is a bad friend. Trash. A trash okay, person. Okay. So yeah it's definitely just bad but anyway so this kind of all goes down on the island they come home from their trip once they get home to marseille um edmund is promoted to, for bravery to the captain of the ship because the captain did die on the island mm-hmm. but anyway this pisses everybody off yeah. okay fernand's pissed because edmund just can't seem to do anything wrong his life is so great and then the first mate Donglar, who just got passed up also very bad um who he doesn't piss off, though, is his girlfriend slash fiance, Mercedes, mm-hmm. who is super stoked because this promotion means that they can get married ASAP. No more waiting for him to become, you know, rich or whatever, or have a job, really. <laughs> they can get married now. Yes. <laughs> so Emma and Mercedes celebrate this by sharing a very passionate night on the beach, and all seems perfect. Uh, the next day, however, Edmund is arrested because Fernand is a big old tattletale and spills the beans to the prosecutor, Villefort, about the letter. So after like two minutes, though, of Edmund being in Villefort's presence, um, Villefort sees that obviously Edmund is innocent. Right. He's like, oh, this guy can't read. He's just a sweetie. So <laughs> Villefort is like, okay. You know, get your cute little butt out of here. Be careful. <laughs> and then he's like, wait. <laughs> he's like, wait. Who is the letter for? And Edmund's like, oh, like he name drops Villefort's dad as yeah. the guy who's the intended recipient of the letter. And then it just goes downhill from there. Uh, Edmund is sent off to prison, but not before he and Fernand share a heated sword fight during which it is revealed that Fernand is the one who set Edmund up in the first place. Really dramatic best friends fighting. Um, but that doesn't stop the... the um, what is the name of the the soldier guys? In it? I, I love it. They're like the... Oh man, anyway. The cute French name for the Oh the gendarme. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> the gendarme are on their way. <laughs> they love that word in there. Like the gendarme, the gendarme. Oh, there you go. The gendarme come take him away. And they go to Chateau d'If. Now, this is not regular prison. This isn't like where you can visit your friends and family behind bars. This is where they put people they never want to see again and who are totally innocent. Yeah. And that's where Edmonds ends up. So he spends the first six years there totally alone. Oh. Kind of losing his mind on his will to live. Yeah. Um, but this is but six years into his imprisonment is when we meet the priest. So yes. in the movie, they don't say his name. They just they, call him they the call priest. Him, they use his name, I think, once or twice. <laughs> and it's the Abbe, Abbe Faria, I think. Uh, so, oh, there you go. Okay. But the priest is much easier. <laughs> sure. For our listeners. Yeah. So the priest uh, tunnels into Edmund's prison <laughs> cell through the floor. <laughs> and gives Edmund essentially a new reason to live because the two begin to work together to continue their tunnel towards the sea mm-hmm. in hopes of escape. So they they be, they be tunneling. <laughs> Meanwhile, the priest teaches Edmund all the things, right? He teaches him reading, writing, yeah. math, fighting, several languages. And they spend like seven years together yeah. doing this. He like Mr. So- Miyagi's him with his... His freaking hand in the water. Yes. <laughs> so great. Yes. Yeah. They're like, throw your hand under the drop until it stays dry. Like, I love his crazy. Sound like, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. It's like a karate kid thing for sure. Like, yeah. it's cracking me I just me realized out. I made those noises and no one could see my 
hand moving. That's right. The hand out. If you know, you know, if you you know, you know, you get it. Um, and during all this time too, the priest kind of helps Edmund go back and figure out what happened to him. Mm -hmm. Like what, why is he here? Which comes the grand discovery that, oh, Villefort was totally covering for his dad and that's why he's here. So Edmund's like, all right, cool. Add him to the list of people that I'd be revenging on when when I get out of this place. So unfortunately, right as they almost reach the end of this tunnel, the priest is crushed in a cave-in and dies. Um, Yeah, but not before he gives Edmund the treasure of Sparta map, which is a map to this insane fortune. Um, Now, Edmund uses the priest's dead body, actually, to launch a new escape (laughs) plan, which succeeds. (laughs) It's so dark, but I mean, you know, seize the opportunity. When in Rome. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) When in Chateau Deep, you know, <laughs> make it happen. Um, and then once he gets out, he ends up on a beach surrounded by smugglers, right? He's free at last, and then he's in this really precarious situation. So Edmund proves himself in a really cool knife fight to the smugglers, earns their respect, and then also the undying loyalty of Jacopo, his new sidekick. Mm-hmm. So he got this cute little... In the movie, he's like a cute little comic relief yes. guy. <laughs> Honestly, that's what they use him for. So Evan pays a visit to his old boss of the shipping company once he gets back to Marseille and gets the scoop on what all went down during his time in prison. And he finds out tragically, of course, that his dad has passed away, everybody moved to Paris, and Mercedes married Fernand a month after he went to prison, which is like a hammer blow to everything about him. Mm -hmm. Does not put him in a happy place, we will say. So, yeah. So he and Jacobo finally are... They eventually follow the treasure map to a super cool island, the island of Monte Cristo, and they find all the money. Mm -hmm. And then Edmund hatches his plan for revenge. You know, this is a good time now that I'm rich to take these mofos down. Yeah. So um, he basically systematically ruins everybody's lives. He tricks (laughs) Villefort into... Yes. (laughs) Seriously, though. He tricks Villefort into confessing to the murder of his own dad, conspiring to murder his own dad and falsely imprisoning Edmund. And then um, he gets his old first mate, Danglois, arrested for smuggling and theft. Mm -hmm. And then he calls in all of Fernand's debts, gambling debts, and makes it impossible for him to pay them off. (laughs) So he is just going to town. Um, He's really ticked at Mercedes, but pretty quickly after them seeing each other, they realize, oh, she never did love Fernand. She always loved him. Yeah. And they, of course, have like a steamy hookup that's well overdue because they, of course, madly in love. So pretty cute. And so she's all stoked. I'm leaving Fernand. I've got Edmund back. My life is great. But Edmund at this point is not done. He's like, nah, <laughs> I'm going to set up in a dramatic castle this whole elaborate final revenge speech and plan, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to take Fernand down. This is all thwarted and uprooted when Albert, um, Mercedes' son, comes up. And he's he's like, no, you can't kill my dad. And then Mercedes comes up and she's like, that's not your dad. This guy's your dad. And then they're all like, what? Oh, my gosh. And yes. they're totally like, I don't want any part of this anymore. I am done. I don't want to have revenge. Fernand, just go. Fernand drives, like, <laughs> drives, drives his horse. <laughs> he rides his horse away from everybody. And then realizes, crap, I... Have nothing to live for. I have no money. I have yeah. nothing. So he turns his evil little butt around and goes back for that final intense sword fight, which of course Edmund wins, mm-hmm. knocks him down in true storybook fashion. Very dramatic, very excellent. Um, and then the movie ends with Edmund buying his old house. Just kidding. <laughs> buying Chateau Deef. Yes. <laughs> his childhood home. No. <laughs> buying the hellhole he was in for, <laughs> for 14 years. 
and um, prays to the priest, to the spirit of the priest, out to, toward the ocean, saying, I will forever now use this money for good and not for revenge. And got his cute little fam behind him and and all that. So, yeah, that's essentially the movie version. That is the movie of version. Count of Monte Cristo. Yes. And can we yes. just, just for the sake of everybody, we can fully recognize that when he comes back as the quote unquote Count of Monte Cristo, this man looks exactly the same. He just has a goatee. <laughs> like, Ain't nobody getting fooled by yeah, that. Goatees are <laughs> like that's are very, very serious back then. Yes, and the reality is that, like in the book, they describe it as like he has spent like twelve or thirteen years in the Chateau d'If, right? Or sixteen? I don't forget. It's like very long, and he's like yeah, skinny and super pale and just like pretty much a ghost of himself. And so in the movie, you're like, okay, well, it's Jim Caviezel or however you say his name, Kevin, Ka- Ka- yeah, whatever, and. He's fine. And so, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're not gonna see him as ugly, but he just fools everyone looking barely different. So, you know. Yeah, Mercedes recognizes him and you're like, finally somebody, gosh, right. everybody around here be <laughs> so fooled by this exactly. goatee and fluffy hair. Right. <laughs> and so it's it's a, it's essentially it. this very long exploration and long journey of revenge right like it's it's full yeah. of revenge but that is not who edmund is right edmond he is not that no. he's not that way yeah. and in fact when he first gets into that uh cell into his first cell there's a writing on the wall that said god will give me justice and the version of edmond that we meet at the beginning he is very faith-filled he is all about you know like well you people will see he's very loyal he's very um optimistic he's trusting and so he goes in with this hopefulness that then year after year just gets beat out of him and so you see him at the very beginning he's um continuing to write in this carving on the wall to etch it even deeper that god will give me justice and well by the time he meets abbe faria or the priest he has totally lost hope and this is where i find um a very important theme that comes out here is that idea of spirituality and so for a sec just to give some background i am a licensed social worker so one of our big theories that we use within social work is systems theory and it's to recognize that the systems that we have in our lives are a big part of how we understand our behavior and how we function and so those systems are loads of things like the communities that we are a part of um, our families our friends and spirituality and religion is certainly a part of that and so for the sake of this discussion we're not getting into any certain like specific religions or anything like that but just spirituality in general um, that can mean a lot of things for different people in this case edmond acknowledges kind of early on that his sense of spirituality right is tied to god so that's what we're gonna that's the terminology we'll use um and so god will give me justice right really seems to ring true for him because that's the framework with which he has kind of made sense of the world and we only get a a little snippet of what that looks like but he is very kind of doe-eyed about things and is hopeful and we see him credit a lot of that back to he has this faith right um well we see that shift as time goes on, don't we? Well, it's something I think that even because even him, like you said, like his whole personality is kind of wrapped up in his his uh, 
faith. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know anybody who could spend time in six years in that cell and come out with the same faith. You know, it's, it's understandable. Yes. That the situation he's in would totally bring him down. Right. And it's, it's one of those concepts that um, I think when we come at it from that faith perspective, um, this is where we see a lot of toxic positivity show up, whether we want to acknowledge it or not within religious communities is that hard things happen and hard things can happen. And we can acknowledge that they are hard without going to that place of everything is wonderful. Find, find the bright side of this, right? Like this man was in the Chateau d'If. This place, he was never going to come out of this place, right? And he had yeah. a lot of reasons to be hopeless. He had a lot of reasons to be angry, to be upset. And along the way, I, I think sometimes from that uh, religious or spirituality side of things, we tend to be very black or white. And so I see that in him, that he's coming into this with that very black and white, like, well, God will give me justice, then go work out, I will be okay. And then as the years continue to tick on and he's continuing to carve into this wall, I see almost that like frantic feeling of like, okay, but when? Like, when do I get to feel that? Yeah. And it brings up a very interesting kind of like theoretical approach that I just want to touch on that I think is powerful. So James Fowler is um, a psychologist and a theologian who I forget if it's if he's of the Lutheran faith or I think it's Lutheran, but I apologize. I should have done my research with that. Anyway, he developed kind of this six-stage theory around the stages of faith, and it's how we develop through our um, sense of spirituality and our sense of connection to a higher power. And there are essentially um, six stages to that. And so just to give you a brief rundown, there's the first one is intuitive or projective. And so this is like our toddler to preschool age. This is when our spirituality is defined a lot by like parental behavior. So we're going to really pattern a lot of our ideas of what a higher power looks like off of the parents that we have. And our fantasy and reality become kind of confused at this stage because we're very, we're kind of fantastical as children. And so it's, it's kind of this blurry, blurry idea of what is that higher power. Um, okay. So stage two is mythical or literal. And this is around kind of school aged and beyond and into adolescence, this stage of faith. And it's where we start to think logically, but we're still don't totally understand all of the stories of faith. Um, and, but we do interpret a lot of things very literally, right? So a lot of liter literal interpretation. Um, the third stage is synthetic conventional. This is a lot in adolescence and, and into kind of early adulthood where we're starting to find it uh, difficult to think outside of that religious box we have a very strict a, a very strict set of rules that we abide by and we're much more into the authority of things and worried about like punishment not necessarily doing things out of this is what i've committed to but rather i'm going to do this because i'm afraid of what will happen if i don't right which then takes us into stage four which is my my theory here is that this is where I feel that uh, Edmund is during this movie. And this is the individual reflective stage. And so this is a young adult into truly like middle age slash into more of those older years. And this is where we examine very critically and question our beliefs. And so we're becoming more disillusioned with our religious traditions. Um, this is a lot of like the like faith journeys happen in this stage. And then to keep it very brief, stage five is where we're starting to get into kind of middle age where we're finding more of the paradoxes and accepting paradoxes. And then the last one is um, 
stage six universalizing. So being able to fully integrate our faith into our, into our life. So long winded explanation to say this man to me feels like he fits very much within that stage four, because he is having to break down a lot of his understanding about where he fits um, and, and really trying yeah. to figure out like the foundation that he built upon before is kind of crumbling beneath his feet. And so I'm curious, like well, that makes sense. Yeah. Keep, yeah. Keep well, going. Keep I, going. <laughs> I make sense. Be- yes. Because I see that, um, like you were kind of said earlier, like it's proven true for him. Like what he's the general, like ge- generational experiences in his life, like what he's been taught his whole life has been true. Like he's a really good guy and things just work out for him. I think yeah. that's why Fernand like hates him. Totally. <laughs> he's annoyed with him. He's his friend. They're best friends, but he's like, man, you just, everything you have is better than me. Like, and also it doesn't, it's not actually better because he got like a whistle for his birthday and Fernand got a pony and he was happier with his whistle. And Fernand yes. was with his pony because he's just a happy guy with a ton of faith. And his whole life, things just work out. Like he, mm-hmm. he takes his captain ashore to try to get medicine and it ends up getting him promoted to captain. Like, right. And then like, he's just a, really poor guy but mercedes is crazy about him because she sees what a good guy he is and fernando's just standing there like dude i'm the son of a duke and nobody even cares about me he's got his arms folded all pouty metaphorically Mm -hmm. about everything that edmund has and i think that it makes sense that he'd be in this spot in this faith journey because he's like oh it's been proven true i'm a good guy i do good things good things happen to me totally yes So so what a crusher when he literally or he gets put into prison for zero fault of his own. Yes. He did absolutely nothing wrong. Yes. He just was being a good guy and trusting people and trusting that God would take care of everything. And he ends up in the worst, like he lives, ends up in literally hell. Like he says mm-hmm. that to Edmund at one time. He's like, you sent me to hell. You know, yes. he did. It's like the worst thing you could imagine is being stuck in that cell. Totally. And, and as I looked at it, I really saw the Chateau d'If as this kind of like symbol of of our emotional struggles and difficulties, like the things that are very much outside of our control. Because when we look at our, our circles of control, right, there's our circle of control, our circle of influence, and then our circle of things that are outside of our control. The Chateau d'If, that he had no control over being put in there. He had no control over what happened to him. Like very little was in his control. And for about six years, he lived fully outside of that circle and didn't take control of honestly pretty much anything. Now, as he starts to meet the priest and he begins to explore things a little differently, um, we see him, to me, he's stepping back into his circle of control and recognizing, okay, I I have some power over what I choose to do with my time. I have power over what I allow myself to learn, right? He's trying to have to, one, unlearn some of the things that he's experienced over the last six years, but also to learn new things as well. And so this stage of faith... so. Just to back up, progressing through faith, faith is not meant to be one static thing. So contrary to maybe popular belief, um, we are on a spectrum of belief. We are meant to continue to change and to shift. And it doesn't mean that someone is not faithful when they question things, right? To me, it is a very healthy expression of faith development because you're attempting to understand the world more fully. If we stayed in those first couple of stages of kind of this like fantasy, um, really hard and fast black and white place. um, And I think there's a comfort in making things black and white for ourselves. That feels very comfortable to say, this is absolutely right. And this is absolutely wrong. Um, The reality is that there are very few black and white things in the world. A lot of it is gray 
and there's a lot of nuance. And so for Edmond, he's having to totally reconstruct his entire life and his faith journey. This individual reflective stage that he's in, this lasts for years. It lasts for so many yeah. years. He doesn't just have like a, this eye opening thing is like, oh, I'm all better now. Like, no. It lasts through the rest of his time at the Chateau d'If. It lasts through his whole revenge scheme. It's not until kind of the very end that he's starting to realize like, oh, hey, maybe, maybe there is God in this. Maybe God didn't forget me. It takes him a long time, which I don't think is, we're not always on board for that. (laughs) Like when we are exploring what faith means, like, and we're on that faith journey, we want answers like, hey, like right now. Um, but for him, yeah. it took almost, what, 15 plus years before he came around to, okay, now I can acknowledge my higher power, um, which I think is well, significant. What I like, um, oh, me too. And, and I think that one of the main shifts there comes from, I feel like, his locus of control because I feel yeah. like he, in the beginning, was just putting it all on God. Like, I'm just walking around doing my thing and God's just making life happen for me. Yeah. And I think when he meets the priest, he realizes, okay, I got to take control of my life. Like mm-hmm. he said, it, it turns into a, he's in a spot now where he has choices mm-hmm. and he has to make it happen. Like God's not going to magically free him from this yes. prison. He's going to have to do it himself. And he's angry about that. Yeah. Like, I think that he, he, through that whole, those years and years of him and the priest digging that tunnel underneath their, their jail cells, like, he does not see God in any part of that. That's him doing it himself. And yes. it only takes till he looks back later to rationalize, oh, maybe God was there the whole time helping me as I took my own actions. Yes. I think that that's a big faith crisis and faith journey for a lot of people is being like, oh, but bad things are happening to me. Right. And God's not taking them away from me. I have to go do the research myself or I have to get myself out of this situation. And that's a hard transition, I think, yes. from the child or adolescent way we look at God mm-hmm. to the real. Like, yes. If you want to keep that faith, you're going to have to rationalize it. You're going to have to do stuff too. Yes, absolutely. And and questioning or understanding what your spiritual beliefs are, because we can also acknowledge that like stages of faith exist, not just within that idea of God, but within our spiritual sense altogether. And so whatever your higher power might look like, right, that we essentially go through these very similar stages of faith. It's not just um, like based in Christianity. It, it, it can go across sure. lines, right? But there is a quote in there that I really loved. I wrote it down because I loved it so much. But he's talking to the priest, and the priest is talking about uh, something about God. I forget. And Edmond says, I don't believe in God. It do- and the priest, I love his response because he says, it doesn't matter. He believes in you. And that, I think, is yeah. profound because... To me, it's speaking to where the priest is at. And so um, looking at those stages of faith, I know I kind of very quickly went through them, but I'm curious where you feel like the priest falls. Like what stage you feel like he falls in? I think he's in the last stage. He's universalizing his faith. I think he's come to terms with all the decisions and everything that God has all the times that he has personally seen God in his life, bringing him to where he is. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's kind of rationalized the whole plan to himself and yeah. made a lot of, he has a lot of peace. I feel like yeah. in his relationship with God, he's sort of accepted a lot of things. Not that he could ever undo the tragic, bad, you know, mm-hmm. things that he feels guilty of in his past, but he's not letting it keep him from 
having hope of escaping or moving forward. No, you're exactly right. And being in that kind of universalizing stage, right, is even as he discusses these different things that he's experienced, he started to make meaning of what he's experienced, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like as he recounts the kind of the atrocities that that happened where he burned up like that building of people um and just he's able to recognize like yeah that wasn't a good thing and i i have to be accountable but he also finds a way to make meaning of what he's experienced and to make meaning of his life even though it's different than how he probably expected it right and so i believe that too i think he is more in that universalizing stage and i think that that pisses edmund right off when he's like stop talking to me about god stop talking to me about faith like do not want to hear it my guy and the priest is just like nope can't he's like the the monkey in the lion king he's like sorry can't help yes. it <laughs> just <laughs> that's how it is yeah that's just yeah that's, that's how life is sorry you can't run away from it mm-hmm. um and edmond is not happy about it but um no. it's because he's going through this this phase of he's recognizing that there are paradoxes. He's recognizing that not everything makes sense and that things don't have to make sense for him to be okay or for him to have some sort of faith in a higher power. And so the impact of that spirituality on Dante's right is difficult, but you also see it shift. And so I'm curious how you notice it shift as time goes on. Well, I just love the conversation he has with Mercedes because she has had, when they had their big like blow up in his bedroom and she's like, let it go, Edmund, let go of the hate. And he's like, don't rob me of my hate. It's all I have. Like, yes, really emotional about it. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, God is in everything. She's he, or God's in everything. He sees everything. Like he, she's saying her, his own words back to him. Yeah. Just dramatized in movies and stuff. Yeah. But I think that he realizes that she has also had to live all these years without him too. Mm-hmm. And he sees it maybe in her that she still has her faith. Yeah. That things will work out. And she's, and she's happy to see him. And she's like, look, God brought us back together. And he's like, enough with this. He yes. even says, Oh God, can I ever escape him? Yes. Because it, it comes to the point where he's not, he hasn't, as much as he maybe thinks he has, he has not made peace with, without the God that he of his youth you know Mm -hmm. he has not made peace without it he's been running from him and fighting him which when you're doing that essentially means you still believe in him so i feel like he Mm. never really fully rejected god he always believed in him he was just at war with his god yeah so when she when he when he admits that he's like oh can i ever escape him and she's like no he's in everything yeah i just think it's so funny because it's like you just admitted that you've like he's right. been a monkey on your back this whole time. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because you see not only him, but also uh Jacoba and then also so Mercedes, Jacoba, and the priests. They are all kind of these people who are in different fa- phases than him and different stages. Because you hear Jacoba kind of turning him back and being like, Hey, like you can go back to your old life. You don't have to hold on to this hate. And everyone's like, nope i i need it right and then again mercedes is like hey let this go like release yourself and he's like nope need revenge and so it's only until the very end after after he already gets all of his revenge that he's like you know what right. let me let go i i have beef with that but it's okay 
And so, so yes, I, I do see him really struggle with that. And I don't think he gets to that stage six yet of universalizing. I think he still is in that more of that conjunctive phase of he's starting to recognize yeah. both the both his past and also his future and and starting to maybe have like a big piece of it is finding an appreciation for mystery like recognizing that there are things that don't make sense and i think that to me that's where he really ends up is is in that kind of acceptance radical acceptance that he doesn't understand all of the yeah. things but that he can still be okay regardless yeah i agree i think it's um it's fun it's fun to watch i don't know and there's parallels to everyone's own lives and own ideology if you have any sort of religious talk with any person you can find out kind of where you're all at mm-hmm. when you were before we move on to talking about revenge which i was yes. to talk about revenge because it's a huge theme as me but to go back to the whole theological aspect when you're reading off the stages it reminded me it made me laugh because some of them are like this is for children this is the stage that children are in i mm-hmm. just know so many people yeah <laughs> i feel like are much older or some some aspects of my mm-hmm. own faith i realized or just the childish things sure. you know like or just totally. sort of the like the fear based faith yeah. parts the um the inability to like grow your own through your own experiences like mm-hmm. applying what you believe to your own experiences a lot of people kind of keep them separate yeah anyway it was fun to like listen you'd be like oh in the beginning you know we just sort of have mythical literal faith, you know, trying to rationalize what's mm-hmm. real and what's myth or what we've mythalized, I mean, yes. mythalized with what we have turned from fantasy to reality in our own heads. I just think that's so, it's a really yeah. cool model. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I think we're all in different stages, even lower totally. than, or even yes. more in the first and second stages. Yeah, It's got to be inside of you to know. I'm glad that you said that because it is just to normalize it. Like, um, analyzing one's faith orientation or perspective can feel very threatening. It's like any belief system that we have, the moment that we start to shine a light on it and analyze it, feels scary because it's like, oh, I didn't know that that was there, right? It's like, it's starting to see along with the good bits, kind of the ugly bits. And like everything in life, there are ugly bits to most things. And so as we analyze it, it can feel very threatening. And that's why when people are not ready, when people are maybe in some of those lower stages and they're not ready to talk about the paradoxes, it can feel very uncomfortable and threatening. And we're going to honor that and recognize that, okay, then that's your boundary, right? Set the boundary. If that's your boundary, set the boundary and it's okay. And that's the boundary that the priest sets with with um, Edmund, like he doesn't mm-hmm. press it. He doesn't sit and go, well, you should be where I'm at, blah, 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 blah. He's more like, well, I know that God loves you and that he's with you no matter what. So I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. And he just kind of steps back and lets, he doesn't even like force Edmund to like give up his hate and give up his plans of revenge right. because that's what Jesus would do or whatever. He doesn't even do that. He's like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, you don't have to believe in God. He believes in you. Let's keep digging this tunnel. Absolutely. Let's not get into it. I think that's important for us to take into our lives as yeah. people. Applying this real life, like, hey, we're all in different stages of whatever belief systems we have mm-hmm. and whatever religion we have. And we all need to just, like, step back and just love each other because it's yeah. it's not fun to be in any of these stages. You know, there's, yeah. there's good and bad things that come with totally. it. Totally. That's, that's a great point is honoring where people are at and allowing people to be different than you right differences are not mm-hmm. um dangerous differences are not dangerous yeah. they are normal and okay 
and we make them dangerous because I think it goes back to our core of like survival that things that feel different maybe in the past were dangerous, right? Like if you yeah. are a caveman and you come across a new caveman and you're like, I don't know you, then that's dangerous, yeah. right? We don't live like that anymore. And so we can we can no, we be don't. more accepting and we can be more open to that. And so, so yes, that does lead, lead us to that idea of the expression of anger and injustice that we see in this movie. So th- this is very calculated. Right. Edmund is very calculated mm-hmm. with how he does this. And he says an interesting thing a couple of times. Um, and he it comes out when he is talking to Mercedes the first time when she's like, You are my Edmund. Like you you are him. You're not the, the count. And <laughs> the goatee is not fooling me. Right? I know who I you are. I can see your eyes and your hair twirling, and I know it's you. Right. Um, <laughs> which just gets me that that's his the the tell that gives her give gives him away is yeah is the way he hair. twirls his hand with it, or towards his hair is so funny. I know and so but she says you know like as she's talking with him he says Edmond is dead and this is powerful to me because coming at it from kind of the trauma based perspective and um uh, I don't want to get into all the details of this. This one, I'm sure will come up in an, another podcast another time. But internal family systems is a modality that we use to understand how we experience the world and how we kind of cope through that and the different pieces of ourselves that experience um, experience things. I, that's a very simplistic way to describe it. But what I see in this is that he is recognizing that that part of him that Edmond that Mar- Mercedes loved, that was very innocent, very trusting, very loyal. Um, there are large pieces of him that are gone. Um, and because of that, like the Count of Monte Cristo, like you can call it like his alter ego, whatever. To me, this is a, a part of him that really was rose into existence, so to speak, as a survival tactic, because that was the thing that was getting him through was I'm going to find my revenge on these people um, when he had really not a whole lot else to live for. And so we see this anger bubble up. It turns into deeper than anger, but it's hitting on some of his values of justice, right? Justice and trust and loyalty Mm -hmm. to me seem like some of his really big core values. And so, yeah, to keep it, that's just to keep it brief and so i'm curious what you noticed as we look at this idea these themes of anger and injustice what your take on some of that is well i think that as like a kid watching this movie or even a teenager i just i loved it because i thought the revenge was so fun like because Mm -hmm. he even says it to Jacopo at one point he's like like Jacopo's like why don't we just kill these dudes and move on Mm -hmm. he's like oh no we will make them suffer as I suffered. Like he's got this crazy yes. look in his eye and you're like, Oh snap. And then he throws these balls, these Epic parties. And he like comes down on like a, like a hot air balloon ride. Yeah. It's like Magical. circus performers. It's so over the top and nobody can refuse him. Cause he's so rich. It's like, it's intoxicating this idea of being like, I have all the power because mm-hmm. when he was in prison for all those years, he was completely powerless to these yeah. people. And so I think that the revenge he feels is also tied in with this a sense of power mm. and his ability to 
you know, rain down the judgment, how mm-hmm. he wants to do it. And nobody can even stand in his way. He has ultimate power. I mean, like Yakubo yeah. says when he sees all the treasure of Sparta, he's like, you're richer than any person I've ever even heard of. Like this yes. wealth in the story is incredible. He can do anything with it. And that's why Yakubo's like, why are we doing this? Because it really is all yeah. he had. It's all he was able to think about for all those years. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the whole idea that he's like, I'm going to make this slow. I'm going to make it like so much poetic mm-hmm. justice through the whole thing. Like, like, yes. And it's all for him to feel better. Yes. And I think that that's what makes the movie and the book and everything so fun to watch as you get to see how, because I mean, mm-hmm. as the, as a viewer, you're mm-hmm. ticked off with these guys. Totally. You're like, screw that guy. Screw that guy. Like, Right. Like, if it were me, I would want to do the same thing. And so I think he gets really caught up in that. Yeah. And it helps you get caught up in it, too, because it's working. Yeah. <laughs> like, the revenge is working. And it's, like, so sweet. These epic moments where they all recognize it's him. Like, every time yes. they're like, oh, my gosh, it's him, you know? Yeah. Actually, it made me burst out laughing this time when Villefort gets into the carriage. The same carriage uh-huh. that he had been in, put in all those so years ago poetic. to go to the Chateau d'If. So poetic. And then he, but there's a pistol in there, you know, <laughs> so he could kill himself. So Villefort could kill himself. Right. Um, which was a courtesy he never gave Edmond or whatever. Right. The, the gendarme guy's like, here, you know, a courtesy for a gentleman. Like, if you'd like to blow your brains out in this carriage, there's a you know, right. gun right here. You can do that. Yeah. And Villefort does. He grabs the gun and he points it at his head or puts it in his mouth. It pulls the trigger and nothing happens. <laughs> and Edmund just jumps up from the shadows behind him through the bars. He's like, you didn't think I'd make it that easy, did you? Like, right. he is just on one. Yes. <laughs> it's like, I like let you go through the psychological yes. horror, which is deciding to end your life in this carriage. And I didn't even let you do it. Like, suck on that. Like, whoa, dude. Yeah. It's yeah. Heavy stuff. <laughs> it is very, very heavy. And you're right. When I, as I watched it this time around, um, it's like most of these movies that we've been watching that I'm like, huh, never realized that before. And as I watched it, I remember in the past as I've watched this movie that I'm like, yeah, eat it, you guys. You, you did him dirty and now you're going to get it. And now watching this time, I'm like, whoa, this is a lot like and i think in the movie the timeline that they lay out it's about three years in the book it's like way longer um sure but he's laying out these very intricate things like all of it is so intricate and it's tough because that's not healthy like i understand this is where moral relativity starts to come in moral relativism is that you want like they frame it in the way that you want him to get revenge you want him to get justice and at the same time that's super yucky like turns yeah. out a murder murdering for because someone murdered like oop that's not that's not kosher um but well, you, you turn you, into the villain yes so quick yeah he's just turning into the villain yes so quick. and i feel like the only thing that stops him from doing that is mercedes yes like absolutely just just imagine like if she had actually just been like totally like cheating on him with fernand this whole time and like Mm -hmm. was it conspiring to also put him in prison because that's kind of what he thinks happened when he gets out of prison that's a good point and he talks to his boss and he's like how did everybody do while i was gone he's like well your dad's dead and your friends all moved to paris and and your fiance married your best friend a month after you went to prison and no one even 
came to find you. I mean, wow. Yeah. What a pill to swallow. Yes. Because I think that the whole time he was in prison, he may have, he just didn't know what happened to Mercedes. So he's imagining 20 different scenarios. I don't think in any of those scenarios, he imagined that she married his best friend. I don't think that happened. So for him to come out and be like, oh, she did what now? Yeah. Like, I feel like we don't know. We don't really find out what he had fully intended for her in the movie. Mm -hmm. But he was playing some crazy shady games with her kid, with Albert. When Albert went to Carnival or whatever. Mm -hmm. Carnival. And then, I don't know if it it wasn't in Rio, so it wasn't Carnival. (laughs) He called it Carnival, so whatever. He did. He went to this crazy Carnival with his friends. and We're not very cultured. We don't know. (laughs) No, we're not. I know they went to Rome, not Rio, okay? I'm not that. (laughs) Anyway, so, but like he totally like set him up to get like... Uh, kidnapped and in a hostage situation where he got to save him. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, Albert isn't innocent in all this, and he's right. dragging him into it, like yes. mind games with him, giving the toast at his birthday. Like, it was getting pretty heavy mm-hmm. with what he was. I, mean, I don't know what he was planning for Mercedes, right? But the fact that he finds out she actually loved him all along, and she had to marry for out of desperation because she was pregnant with his kid. Right. I mean. That I feel like in the movie, at least they like kind of show his face all like freaking out. He's like, "Oh my gosh, I gotta stop this. Yeah, I gotta calm down. This isn't good. This is bad. This right. is, I, I can't do this." But up until that point, he's got crazy plans. Yeah, not doing him any favors. Right to be that obsessed with revenge. Right, you fun to watch. It yes, ain't, it ain't cool, man. Right, because if this were to play out in real life, this is a felon. Right, this man would be a felon. Yes, he would be put in prison again. Um, but it, it does kind of it hits on this idea of how we express and externalize our emotions. Um, what actually helps us, right? And so there is this long held belief, and I guess I will say there are conflict. There's conflicting evidence on this, and so where you look, you might get different answers, but. The overarching understanding now is that ventilating anger through, like, physical means or, like, really, like, taking anger out on something, while it's meant to be, like, a sort of catharsis, what we recognize and realize is that what that actually does is increase our levels of aggression when we attempt to externalize anger through kind of those physical means. So even, like, if you're super angry and you go and you exercise super hard... Um, it might not always actually do what you intend it to do. It might not actually burn off steam for you. It might heighten that aggression. And so there's a study I, I pulled up because I wanted to highlight it. I like it. It's, it's from 2002. Um, I suppose I probably should include this citation, but whatever. Um, it's from Brad Bushman from Ohio State University. And he just looks at how, um, like, some of the reasons why revenge might be so satisfying is kind of two, two theories is that one comparative suffering. So seeing that person in emotional pain starts to return balance to the universe, so to speak. Um, and then the other part is the understanding hypothesis. And so if, if you can create the offender um, to have the same sense of misfortune and then to tie it to their actions from previous that that is a way to almost build like see hey i did the same thing to you that you did to me and it sucks and so 
Yeah. Kind of those two approaches are kind of what we're trying to get at. That's the theory. Um, but as we, again, as we attempt to externalize that anger, usually through some of these like physical means, um, it doesn't always help us in the same way because like we've talked about before on previous podcasts, um, anger is almost never the actual feeling that we're having. Right. It's usually something underneath. So what do you feel like is underneath uh, Edmond's anger? What's underneath that for him? Ooh, that's a great question. I feel like uh, I really I just really loved what you said about the second hypothesis when it's just like you want them to experience what you had felt because it sucked so bad and they won't understand you or there's no justice here mm-hmm. until that person has felt what you have felt. Yes. And I feel like the primary emotion probably for Edmund was just retribution for all of the fear he felt. Mm-hmm. He was so scared in that yeah. self the helplessness yeah. and the um the longing to be with like the people he loved and yeah. knowing like all the FOMO. Like he's in there just missing out on life. Yes. And so like those are the feelings that he had to carry for years and years and years. And yeah. so to be angry at these people and trying to get them to understand what he went through, I feel like it's just is he's mad at them, but really he's just so sad that he missed out on everything and that he had to go through those things. Yeah. That's what I think anyway. Okay. I like that though. The, the idea that like, there's a lot of fear that's there. There's that pain and suffering. And there's also just that like lack of connection that he was isolated and alone and hopeless for a really long time. I think that's, that's a very accurate assessment that he had so much, he had so much vulnerable stuff underneath that. And then this anger is that again, it's that he's shifting the power differential of he's coming out on top now, right? He's, he's the one Mm -hmm. that's in a position of power. And again, that only lasts for so long. And in, in the movie, he ends with, you know, he's connected to this family, which I also, (laughs) as Mercedes is like, wait, don't kill Edmund. That's your dad. Um, There is that part of me. That's like, Bro, you expect him to care? Like you yeah. This man is nobody. Like Fernand as for as crappy of a dad as he was, like Albert literally grew up with him. Like he has created a connection. It does not give like it doesn't matter that he's not his blood dad. Like he was his dad all his life. And so that makes me laugh a little bit cuz I'm like that's not how attachment theory works. He would not just be a-okay right. with his other dad. Anyway, just jump ship and be like, oh, this guy's my dad. Right. Dad, I love you. It's right. like, that's a stranger right over there. Like at the very end when he's like mussing up Albert's hair, I'm like, this feels weird because bro doesn't even know you. But yeah, it's cool. I, I'm, yes. <laughs> it's a little bit weird because like, yeah. So I, I mean, also his other dad his other dad his other dad was like a murderer and like killed a bunch of people and was shady as hell but you know still still and yeah. so but so yeah still. <laughs> so edmund's absolutely has a lot of uh vulnerable stuff underneath and and i do think that it, again it's hitting on some core values for him of justice and i think that's something we see a lot in people of faith even though at this time he's still in conflict right is the idea of justice and like again coming back to that original phrase god will give me justice um you see that's kind of pull out here that he's starting to kind of play god a little bit like we i totally see that and that's a theme in the book as well is that he's kind of taking on this like god-like um position and 
making people his puppets. Um, Yeah. But as he starts to, again, realize kind of where he's at and to understand that maybe vengeance isn't the only thing um, that he finally does pull back and says, oh, what's the phrase that he says? Uh, All that was used for vengeance shall now be used for good. Even though Mm -hmm. vengeance has already been had, but, you know. (laughs) I don't need vengeance to be happy. (laughs) Yeah. I don't need that to feel, to sleep good at night. Yeah. It's like, well, I did use it to make me sleep at night. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. So that takes us to our final piece of moral relativity or moral relativism, which we've kind of hit on already. And it's that idea that moral judgments are only relative to a culture, a historical period, a group of people, that there is no absolute true or false, um, and that no standpoint is uniquely privileged over all others. There's no absolute or universal. And so it's all very subjective. And so when we look at it through that lens of morality being this very relative thing, do you think that Edmond Dantes was justified in what he did? Or not? Well, I think through the ren- lens of moral relativity, if hmm, I don't, it's interesting because I feel like if you want to look at like was justice served, you know, mm-hmm. or like were these people did they get what they deserved? It's yeah. a hard question to ask when you make morality yeah. relative. Yes, it's like, well, whose compass are we going by here? Yeah. Because. Like Edmonds, he's like, oh yeah, hell yeah. I like nailed all those guys, like bam, bam, bam. Like couldn't have gone better. Yes. Like everything I planned and dreamed for. But at the same time, like at what cost, like to yourself? Or like at what cost? <laughs> like, or like, I don't know. Sure, maybe they got they all end up in prison or dead. But mm-hmm. like, bro, you spent in the movie three years being crazy yes (laughs) like that time you unlock it back that energy you have put into this like does that justify i don't know the ending it seems like it's just crazy Uh, town to me yeah yes it makes it messy i did did not answer your question no but i truthfully (laughs) that would be my answer as well is that i don't know yeah like i don't know because if we like you said if we're coming at it from the point of view that he has had of my life sucks and it has sucked because of you guys and i can very clearly draw these delineations of where things went sour um then being able to deal out that justice that otherwise wouldn't have been dealt yeah yeah i get it totally that feels justified if we pull back a little bit more and look at it from the context of where we've already seen him grow a little bit and what we know that he understands or at least Maybe not what he understands, but what he has started to hear more of and grow with from the priest, from Mercedes, from Jacoba, um, is that it is okay for him to release it. And so he's had people in his ear that love him and that also are trying to give him perspective. He is very rigid in his thinking, right? Like it's that whole concept of like cognitive restructuring to allow in new perspectives to kind of take on other other uh, points of view. He is unwilling to do that. He's very, very rigid. And so it's not until justice, in his opinion, is carried out that he's open to those other (laughs) perspectives. And so in that way, there is a part of me that's like, no, that was straight up not okay, right? And also the social worker in me that's like, 
could we have rehabilitated those guys if they went to prison? Could we have made things sure. better? Right. Like there's some, again, it's all very nuanced and this is a fictional movie, but um, I is murder ever justified. Right. That that's a, that's a moral quandary that we don't have to answer, but just a general yeah, so you're, rhetorical <laughs> question. Is it ever? You're asking <laughs> some big questions. Yeah. 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 So that's, you know, question to the listeners. When is it just right? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> um, yeah, when can I murder someone? <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Please don't cite me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, I, I agree. My answer is probably the same as that. I don't know that he would be justified um, because if we look at yeah. it through his lens, I could see why he carried out what he did. And also, murder is super no bueno. So, yeah. 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 Um, so, if we take if we wrap this to our lessons learned, what what did you learn? What was your lesson learned in this movie? Yeah, so I think my lesson learned is when it comes to growing in your faith, <laughs> Um, or like who you tell yourself you are as a person, like Edmund was a good guy. Like he was a good guy through and through lots of faith, sort of like just doing all the, going through the motions of being a good guy and really bad stuff happened to him. And I think that none of us are exempt from that. Like just cause you're trying to be a good person doesn't mean you can actually control anything or like around you or the people who are out to get you, mm-hmm. your environment, like if they're coming for you, they're coming for you. And that's when you have to decide for yourself what actions you want to take. Don't lose hope. Be um, authentic in you. Figure out what you do believe in and what will carry you through those hard times. Because they're coming no matter how good of a person you are. No yeah. matter how kind you are, how good your intentions are. The bad times are going to come. Like, yeah. And it took Edmund a long time. I think he was totally not prepared to deal with what he dealt with, obviously, yeah. as a young guy who was just a good guy. We had to prepare ourselves or just recognize, like, life's not going to be peaches and cream just because you're really nice. Like, it's yeah. going to get hard. And so I think this movie kind of reminded me, like, oh, you got to make sure that you are willing to dig that tunnel out of your cell. Yeah. <laughs> like, gosh, it's so cheesy. You got to figure it. out how to dig your own tunnel and not just give up and count the stones on the prison wall. You got to keep moving because yes. otherwise you'll go crazy. Yes. Ooh. I don't even want to, I don't <laughs> even want to give mine <laughs> after that. No, that is beautiful. I like that, that you have to be able to recognize, like we have to live in reality that just because you're a good person doesn't mean bad things don't happen. So, ooh. yeah. Beautiful. All right, Lexi, what's yours? Kiss beautiful. All right, for me, <laughs> for me, um, my takeaway is that growth comes in many forms. So, questioning your faith, questioning your purpose, um, are normal and natural parts of growth. And growing yep. does require us to evaluate what's important to us, and what, and that not only evaluate what's important for us, but also allow ourselves to change our minds. Um, when we learn new things, we get to change our understanding we get to make something new we we get to learn and we get to grow and staying stagnant or staying the same is not a form or is not the only definition of strength um we can be strong as we grow and as we change and so growth and change are the only constant in our lives and so allowing ourselves to grow and to change and to change our minds um, I think is really powerful because I, I mean, we see him do that, albeit not till like the very end, but we see him grow. So 
yes, grow and change and be okay with not staying the same. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I love it. So true. Awesome. Should we spin our wheel for our lightning round? Let's spin our wheel <laughs> for the lightning round. <laughs> What's your favorite part of this movie? You know what? My favorite part in this movie, my favorite parts are basically any of the parts with the priest. One, because it's Richard Harris, I think, is the actor who also plays Dumbledore in the first two Harry Potter movies. And I love him. He's just, he's like the the guy that, like, I would adopt him as my grandpa. Like, I would take him. I would take him. Anyway, I loved any scene with him um, because he just, he was funny and he was humorous. And he was also very real. He was a very real person. And so um, I do love the Mr. Miyagi scene where he's, Swiping his hand under the water. <laughs> so, That's an awesome scene. So bad, eh? I love it. Um, but I also just love his um, his hopefulness. Like, this man has been... Yeah. E- even when he realizes that he's not outside, he's just in Edmund's, uh, or Edmund's cell. He's like, well, okay. Let's see how long it would take to get to the other side now. And he's just so hopeful. Gosh, and yeah. he's always looking for the next thing. And... That would probably be my favorite part would be him. He's just everything with the priest is my favorite. I love that. I love that so much. I would say I think my favorite part is or the part that I'm always just like, suck it. This part's great. Yes. Is when Mercedes returns home from spending the night at Edmund's house. Yes. And Fernanda's just like smashing the whole house to bits. And she goes up there and she's like, what's up? And he's like, all my debts have been called in and no one let me pay them off. And I'm about to go to prison. Yeah. She's like, for what? He's like, conspiracy, murder, fraud, you name it. Like, I'm like, I'm screwed, but I made arrangements for us. Let's go get your stuff. And she's like, I'm not going anywhere with you. And just that (laughs) moment she gets to be like, because she spent so many years under his thumb, just like trying to deal with this decision she had to make. Right. To be with him. And um, and he's like, what do you mean? She's like, I'm not coming with you. And Albert is not your son. And I just love that moment. Because you know yes. she just wanted to say it her whole life. You right. Know, she just wanted to be like, stop trying to parent that kid. Stop trying to yeah. control us. We are we are leaving you. No, we're and then out. it's funny. He's like, <laughs> he's running around packing the room. And she says this. And he just stops he just grabs his bottle of liquor and his coat and just walks out of the room. Doesn't even grab, doesn't grab anything he's packing. He was just like, you know what? That was, it's almost like she got the final say. Yeah. And he was so stumped. He just forgot everything he was doing and just yeah. left. It was a beautiful, that's a beautiful scene to me. Oh, I'm like, I yes, finally, justice for Mercedes. I love that part. Yes. I know anyway, that too. Another part. Uh, but a great yeah. movie. Like I said, one of my faves um, all growing up. I just loved all. I always say The Count of Monte Cristo has everything. Love, mm-hmm. revenge, like God. It's got um, action. It's got really cool scenery. It's, it's filmed on the island of Malta, which has these really cool caves. And like, yeah. it's just beautiful. Just love watching that movie. I always say the movie's got everything in it. You got to watch it. Yes. So, yeah. Oh, I one. love it. <laughs> yes. And the the one piece I wanted to end with is this is the, the movie and the book very they they vary so much, but there is a line at the it's in the very last chapter of the book that I really, really loved and I wanted to read it. It's in this letter that he has written and it says, Live then and be happy, beloved children of my heart, and never forget until the day when God shall deign to re- reveal the future to man 
all human wisdom is summed up in these two words, wait and hope. And Mm. it's a beautiful culmination of his understanding of how he's come to understand that patience is a big piece of things, but also hope is a very large part of that as well. And totally. I, oh. I really love that. Yes. If, if you're ever looking for a really, really, really long book to read, <laughs> it honestly is a great one. And if you love the movie, guess what? It's the movie times a billion. So it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So any of my fellow nerds out there who have read it, tip my hat to you. All right, so for those of you watching and listening along with us, our next movie will be Wreck-It Ralph. We're taking it a little more PG, I guess, or (laughs) kid-friendly. Kind of lightening up a little bit. We've been doing some pretty heavy classics here. So Wreck-It Ralph will be our next movie. So watch that and um, analyze along with us. Yes, looking forward to Wreck-It Ralph. So, all right, we will catch you guys on the flippity flop. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Films and Feelings. If you liked what you heard, drop us a line in the reviews and subscribe for more movie therapy thoughts. If you have a suggestion for the show or a movie we should analyze, hit us up at Films and Feelings Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks.